schools where you have five, six, 700 kids come to school every day. They don't have access to clean water. Um, so what, where do they typically go for, for water then if they don't have clean or they just, they, they, do they take their chances? There there's two options. One, you're either walking a long ways, um, several miles for clean water. And so typically uh, they'll fetch water once in the morning, once in the afternoon um, to hopefully have enough water for the day. And then um, if you're not within range of a well, uh, then you're just using a local stream, stagnant ponds, really whatever you can find, boiling mm. it and, and hoping for the best. Ever hear about people working across the globe to help other less fortunate people, most of the time in Africa? Well, today you get to hear directly from Aaron Porter, the executive director of Global Samaritans, where we chat all things Zambia, the orphanage they operate, and the water wells they build to provide safe, clean drinking water to local villages. So, let's do it. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight I see you broken and beat Head pulled down over your eyes Every part of you wants to surrender Darling, you were meant to survive And thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yes. So to start, I'm so excited to hear all things Zambia. Um, but can you give us an insight into really like what kind of work Global Samaritans um, specializes in and what your mission kind of looks like over in Africa? Sure. So we um, we have a three-part mission. Well, we had a three-part mission. Now we have a four-part mission. Um, we were founded by two doctors. Um, they actually moved to Zambia pretty much sight unseen um, to relieve another doctor. While they were there, um, it was kind of the height of the AIDS epidemic. They decided wow. to start a children's home. Um, so our three-part mission for a long time was to raise um, mature, productive children. Uh, our goal has always been for the children to stay in Zambia. What you see a lot of times is um, what we call brain drain where the best and the brightest um, yep. from Zambia leave. Um, but they wanted their children to stay in Zambia and kind of improve the country from within. So we're raised mature children, um, kind of come along pastors, um, help with discipleship evangelism, um, kind of help facilitate what they're already doing in their communities. And then the third part was to provide an opportunity for um, people to experience life-changing missions and experiences. Um, and then about 10 years ago, we had the opportunity to add in uh, clean water and well drilling. And so we we now have a four-part mission um, in which we drill uh, wells in villages in Zambia. That's interesting to hear, especially the, uh, the part of, I love that you guys are trying to keep children in Zambia because people don't realize, I think, in the United States that when um, we have like a, a huge influx of immigration into the country, what we're doing is actually picking and taking away pretty much the top tier people from all of these countries around the world, which which almost cripples these countries. When you're when you're when you're taking like the well-educated, the people who have gotten training and some knowledge and now 
they're all set to serve that country, but then they end up going to a more developed country like the United States. And what that really does, because you end up taking away like the, the George Washingtons and the Abe Lincolns of these countries that are really like these are the, the, the true leaders of the, the countries that can really, truly make a difference. So that is amazing to hear that you guys your your goal is to is to to keep people there. Um, my my first question, too, is really how um how is the, the communication been for you guys over there being able to, com- to communicate with the locals and, and people over there? Because I got to think if if somebody like me were to go over there for like a, a week or so, like how are you guys able to really put all of this together, working with an entirely different culture, different people um, and and really building what you guys have built so far? So a um, couple different things. Uh, first of all, communication has drastically improved since I got involved in 2005. Um, it used to be when I would go, um, and back then I would go for six weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, stay. Um, and I would talk to my then then boyfriend, now husband, and we would talk about once a week for 10 minutes and it would cost a dollar a minute. So it cost mm-hmm. me $10 a week to talk to him. Um, now I talk to my Zambian staff almost every day via WhatsApp or email or phone. Um, so we have, we're kind of in constant communication. Um, secondly, we actually have a full Zambian staff on staff in Zambia. Um, so we have a orphanage director, we have a children's home director, we have a well drilling crew. Um, we have a full staff at our children's home. And so, um, and most of them have been with us for a long time. Our orphanage director has been with us almost 20 years. And so we have complete trust in them and we really are relying upon them to do kind of the groundwork in Zambia. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the ones finding the, the children who need a home. They're the ones identifying villages, identifying pastors that we work with. Um, so I am able to talk to them every day if I wanted to. Um, I actually have better cell phone service in Zambia than I do in some parts of the Do you really? (laughs) Yes. Um, But like I said, we are really dependent on our Zambian staff and they're phenomenal in that regard. What what language is it over there? Is it, it's not in English, is it? So um, they actually speak 72 languages in Zambia. Um, It is a former British colony. So they do speak English. That's the official language of, of Zambia. Okay, that helps a little bit then, right? Yes, definitely. <laughs> Currently, um, you know, all of our children speak English, or most of them do. Uh, some don't when they come. But the closer you are to the main road, the more English you speak. As you get further out into the bush and the villages, um, they'll speak more tribal languages. But um, we are able to communicate with with everybody we work with. Okay, good, good. And and for people really hearing Zambia, maybe for the very first time as a as a country, can you kind of paint the picture of really like what that country's like and, and where it's exactly located and a little bit about it? Sure. So um, funny story, I actually signed up to go to Zambia for the first time, had, wrote a check for deposit, literally had no idea where it was, had to come home and look it up. <laughs> um, That's so, commitment right there. Yes. So um. Our average listener, you are not geographically inept if you don't know where Zambia is. I didn't either. But um, it's kind of sub-Saharan Africa. South Africa is at the bottom. Then you have like Botswana, Zimbabwe, and Zambia. So Zambia actually touches, um, I think, seven other different African countries. It's kidney bean shaped. Um, Oh, it's eight, actually. They have eight eight. neighbors. Yeah, I was just, I was looking at this huge map that I have behind me. 
And yeah. I was like looking at it and I was like, wow, outside of like maybe China and Russia, they might have like the most neighbors ever because I'm thinking they have eight neighbors, which is Angola, Botswana, the Congo, Malawi, Mozambique, uh, Nam- Tanzania. Namibia, Tanz- Tanzania, and Zimbabwe. And I was thinking just because of the uh, the the Canada fire that's infecting like the air in the Northeast with New York City right now, I'm like, we only have two neighbors in the United yeah. States. And I was like thinking of, of Zambia, they have eight neighbors. Imagine the amount of like difference in like, you know, transportation and, and trading and economy and possible like political conflicts that could be going on. I mean, that is insane. eight neighbors. Absolutely. Because, I mean, you have countries like Botswana and South Africa, which are relatively politically stable, especially now. Um, then you have like the Democratic Republic of the Congo up north and, Zim- and Zimbabwe, who have not been politically stable in 20 years. So, I mean, you're getting a lot of diverse um political problems um immigrants i mean just all kinds of all kinds of things well if you just look at the united states too we have two neighbors and we always have like how many problems yes. going on you know what i'm saying yes. so it's it's crazy um but so the best way i can think of describe zambia is national geographic africa um if you were to picture like a front of a national geographic magazine with the lions and with the lions <laughs> and just kind of like the grasslands and the mud huts and i mean that is zambia um, for the most part, especially in the area where we're in, which is Livingston. It's in the um, southern part of Zambia. Um, Lusaka, the capital city, is going to be different. Co- the Copper Belt is going to be different. But in Livingston, in our part of Zambia, it's National Geographic Africa. So is tourism um, a heavy, heavily driven um, field? It is economy? now. So... Um, Probably within the past 20 years, it has become a big thing. Um, We're right there on the border with Zimbabwe, where Victoria Falls is. Prior to 20 years ago, Zimbabwe would have been the tourist hub. If you were going to see Victoria Falls, if you were going to to go to Africa and do a couple different country tours, you would fly in and out of Zimbabwe. Um, Zimbabwe kind of collapsed with land um, reappropriation. Their economy spun out of control. And so uh, Zambia really took advantage of that and they built up the tourist industry. They put in some nice hotels, they put in some flights to and from Livingston, tourist activities. And so in the past 20 years, we've really seen an increase of tourism in in the Livingston area. Well, and I like that you brought up the Victoria Falls because when you think of the United States, like the very first things you might think of is like New York City, Mount Rushmore, Los Angeles, like these big, huge cities. But when... um you think of Africa, really the what should be on the very front page of the brochure is Victoria Falls because it is Absolutely. beautiful. And it, for people hearing that for the first time, Victoria Falls is one of the uh, largest waterfalls in the world. It is twice the size of Niagara Falls, which is like yes. probably the only falls that people on the you know the, the Western Hemisphere of the, the world uh, think of when they think of falls, Niagara Falls. It is twice the size of it. It is a monster and that is a site that I think everybody should see because it is also so, I think it's like a kilometer wide or something like that too. It's, it's over a mile long and it has the most volume of water of any waterfall in the world. So wow. it is definitely a big tourist attraction. And that obviously brings how much wildlife along with it too, which. Absolutely. So. Yeah. And I, I saw an, a very interesting um uh, piece on on your website that definitely rang some some bells in my ears like oh well that's 
that's kind of funny, but it makes sense now that why you guys are over there that um, Zambia has the one of the largest waterfalls in the entire world, but yet it is also a country that has 4.8 million Zambians without access to clean water. And that's just, you know, when you read something like that, you're like, wait a second, that doesn't, I mean, wow, that's, that's a, the proportion is, is crazy when you think about that. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's nearly a third of their population does not have access to clean water. Wow. With that so, much water too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, a lot of it is a lack of infrastructure. Um, Zambia is very um, sparsely populated. Okay. And so, uh, you know, having the infrastructure being far away from cities, being far away from your neighbors, it just makes, it makes access yeah. to water very difficult. And that's where you guys came in with your your water drilling project, right? That's correct. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um. So we we have always been interested in clean water, um, especially our Zambian director. His name is Dave. Um. He was born and raised in Zambia. Um. And we were sitting with a he was sitting with a team a mission team one summer, and they were talking about you know clean water and well drilling and um this individual whose father-in-law had been involved for 20 plus years, he was making his first trip. He said, well, you know, that's what my dad does as a hobby. He buys old well drilling rigs, fixes them up and sends them to third world countries. No. Donates them. Oh my Um, gosh. And he said, I don't want to commit him to this, but I think this is something he would be interested in doing with Global Samaritans. And fast forward just a couple months later, um, he flew our Zambian director, Dave, over to learn how to, to run a well drilling rig. Uh, or I'm, um, I'm sorry, yes, a well drilling rig. And um, he's now donated. Uh, he's about to send his fourth well drilling rig to us, along with all the wow. support vehicles. And so uh, he really launched um, launched us into, a, into clean water projects. And so... Um, we've had the opportunity to drill clean water all over Zambia, um, schools, villages, uh, we've drilled in clinics. So, um, you're running a clinic, basically a a mini hospital without access to clean water, which is unfathomable. Um, schools where you have five, six, 700 kids come to school every day. They don't have access to clean water. Um, so where do they typically go for, for water then if they don't have clean or they just, they, they, do they take their chances? There, there's two options. One, you're either walking a long ways, um, several miles for clean water. And so typically uh, they'll fetch water once in the morning, once in the afternoon um, to hopefully have enough water for the day. And then um, if you're not within range of a well, uh, then you're just using a local stream, stagnant ponds, really whatever you can find, boiling mm. it and and hoping for the best. Yeah, geez. That's, uh, you're just rolling the dice at that point. Yes, very much so. And, and really, and we may get into this a little bit later, but really, um, the lack of access to clean water disproportionately affects females, Mm. because oftentimes that's seen as a female's job. And so if you're a, you know, a girl in a family, you're going to spend half of your day going back and forth collecting clean water, which means you don't have the opportunity to go to school a lot of times. Yeah, and, that, and that's the the real chain reaction is where it comes from is that, um, you know, like you said, you're either walking a long ways to get clean water when if you do have clean water, 
that opens up probably three hours of your day that now you can spend either like preparing meals or maybe learning and being in school that now when you um, compound that over the course of maybe a decade, 15, 20 years, now all of a sudden an entire group of people who haven't had to direct to get water every day have spent time learning new trades and then they start applying those new trades. And then, I mean, it's like off to the economic races right there and then you're good. I mean, Absolutely. you're getting your, 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 your step-by-step obviously. Absolutely. And that actually uh, reminded me of like when in, I think it was in, in Scotland where whiskey was first created was because people were drinking out of streams and rivers. And obviously where the river travels downwards, it actually gets a little bit more contaminated because people from upstream are obviously dumping things into the river and contaminants and, and waste. And they tried to create like a, a filter for um, cleaner water. And they ended up accidentally kind of inventing whiskey based off of trying to clean the water that was filtering down from upstream. So it's um very ironic how when we do try to fix these things, sometimes things, even better things come out, you know? Yes, yes. Well, you know, and, and not only are they having to walk for water, having to show, share water with other villages, I mean, they're also sharing it with livestock and animals and, yeah. you know, it's just, it's not a great option. Um, even if you're able to boil it, you're still, you're still, it's still a risky situation. Yeah. Cause you're just, uh, I mean, you're becoming contaminated and then that's putting more of a, um, a weight on the local doctors and hospitals that I can only imagine if they are using not as clean water, they're already hurting to begin with. You know, and historically, um, Zambia has only had approximately one doctor per every eight to 10,000 Zambians. Wow. Um, that's not specialty doctors. That's not, you know, anything. That's just a doctor at all. And so wow. when you're drinking contaminated water and, and you're coming down with diseases and all this stuff, you're taxing an already stressed healthcare system. So. Yeah. And that's almost, uh, at that point, I mean, you're like teetering more so on like the potential of collapse and stuff at that really at that degree. Absolutely. And could you uh, tell us a little about your orphanage too? Cause I think that that's amazing. And also to yeah. where, um, where's that, uh, you answer that first and I'll follow up with the question. <laughs> okay. So, um, we have a children's home, um, our, and we do it a little bit differently. A lot of children's homes around the world are run um, kind of like an institution. They'll have somebody that comes and works eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, and then they go home and somebody else works a shift. Okay. Um, our children's home, they set it up differently from the beginning. And we actually have house moms and house dads. And so they live there full time. These are not their children. And they raise anywhere between eight to 10 um, children, kind of same sex, uh, roughly same age as their own. The kids call mom, dad. Okay. And so, I mean, they have signed on to be committed to these children 24 hours a day. And so um, we have anywhere between 40 and 60 children at a given time Mm. Um, per government, um, the Zambian government, we're only required to keep them until they're 14, but education is something that we're really invested in. And so we are committed to keeping them through, through the end of high school and then onto either um, like a trade program or college if they want to. And, um, so we have, we, our youngest are about five and we go anywhere up to 
you know, in the twenties, because a lot of times you'll get maybe a 13 year old who's never really been in school. And so they, they come to us at 13, 13, they might, yeah, they're in grade two, you know, they don't know how to read. They don't know how to write. Um, and so we were committed to seeing them through as far as they want to go school wise. Well, that's awesome because you're also taking them to a lot of times people think, oh, they're 18. They're, they're good to go. When it's like at eight, at 18, the later teens and even in the 20s, people are facing some of the biggest decisions that they're ever going to face in their life. And those decisions that they make at that time are going to project them exactly where they end up at 30, 40, 50 years old. And it's great to know you guys are are there as long as they want to be there. Um, absolutely to, to, to guide them through that because decision making is, is is everything absolutely i mean you're really kind of choosing the trajectory of your life at that point yeah right? yeah and, and you don't want to be doing that by yourself for the first time you're now finally by yourself making all these decisions it's not you know i mean it's 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 always better with some coaches or somebody you you know obviously they they've kind of uh watched you grow up um what really is the the cause you would say of historical cause of, of driving um people into becoming orphans is there one cause you would say pretty much would be um, the factor you know in kind of the early 2000s mid 2000s um a lot of it was aids the aids epidemic in zambia mm. um zambia had one of the highest aids epidemics in the world non-governmental estimates put um that the AIDS epidemic at almost 50% of the adult population. Wow, and then you would 50%. have over 50% of the, of the population that was under the age of 14. And so you really had a, children raising children, a nation run by children. Um, mm. Certainly that's gotten better with the introduction of antiretrovirals, um, condoms, um, other, you know, contraceptives are more widely available and used. So that certainly helped, um, but still we see a lot of children still from AIDS diseases, and most of our children are either um, double orphans, which both of their parents died of AIDS, and, wow. and what we were seeing were a lot of grandparents were raising all of their grandchildren. Um, essentially, their children had all died of AIDS, and you would then find a grandparent who is now raising 10, 12, 15 grandchildren. Wow. Um, and then... What we're seeing more now is single orphans. Um, typically, one parent is deceased, a lot of times the mom, and then either the dad is not in the picture or is unable or unwilling to care for the yeah. child. And so then we have two main ways that we acquire children. Um, the first is through social welfare, um, similar to child like child protective services here in the U.S. And they they work to identify cases, situations in which a children need, a child needs to be removed from that home and placed with a with another provider. Um, but we also still work with chiefs. Um, Zambia is still run by, or they're divided into chiefdoms, and and you would have a village chief kind of over their chiefdom, and they're aware of different situations in their community, um, and they'll contact us and and let us know about a situation in which a child needs to be placed. Yeah, if something comes up. The the uh, it's I'm very excited to see what um uh, the anti uh, anti retroviral therapy really does in the in the coming like decade or two because Botswana back in 1999, um they their government put into place like a I would say like a, a mission to start targeting pregnant mothers with HIV who are HIV positive and tried to stop them from obviously transferring down HIV to their 
their children. And since 2010, there are about 2 million children born in Botswana from an HIV-infected mother, but not themselves carrying HIV. Yes. Which is truly amazing. We're seeing some of that in Zambia, um, but then also we're just seeing major difference in life expectancy. Um, Zambia's life life expectancy had gotten as low as 38. Um, and wow. now it's in like the high fifties, low sixties. Um, so it's just improving quality of life and it's extending life. Um, it's really making a difference. Well, even AIDS and HIV too, it's something that is just so hard to stop out because you would think, you know, you look at, you somebody looks at the United States and goes, well, they would just expect maybe it's a top tier country in the world. They, they wouldn't have these, but we, we, we still do. And we still carry it in certain parts as a high area. Me myself being down in Florida, I know it's a huge issue because in Florida, we lead the country by far in cases of HIV and AIDS to a point where it's we're about 39 to 40 people per every 100,000 people have HIV and AIDS. And the, people think um, that that is actually probably going to climb to about 50 in the next 10 years or so, wow. which is insane. Um, and really, that's not all of Florida. I would say that really is just where I am in Miami, because if you remove Miami from Florida, sure. those numbers would completely collapse, believe me, um, because it's it's insane to see because the second place on that list for worldpopulationreview.com is Hawaii. And Hawaii has about 23 people per every 100,000 people. So Florida actually doubles any country in terms of HIV and AIDS, and you think you you think of the knowledge and the tools that we have here about mm-hmm. protection and 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 being aware and careful but yet we're still not only carrying a high rate but we're actually projected to increase quite significantly in the future which is um i mean it's it's scary because hiv and aids i mean that's that's an issue that's really really difficult to stop out so then you think of of countries that are are climbing that economic ladder and and on their way up and you know it's it's it, thinking of the united states it's not surprising that you do see this still hindering countries all across the world you know and zambia is hard too because you know not only there's stigma attached there's lack of access there's lack of information but zambia is also still a very patriarch patriarchal country in which women are a commodity. You know, if my husband owed another man a debt, he can sell me or trade me to settle that debt. And I really have no say so, um, one, if I have to sleep with another man, but also what kind of protection or contraceptions are used. And so, you know, you're fighting that as well. Um, And Zambia also still certainly more in the rural areas, but they... um, you certainly still find cultures and groups um, who take multiple wives. And so, you know, you have one man Mm. sleeping with multiple women back and forth. And, you know, if you're unfaithful, then you're introducing AIDS and HIV into a whole, a whole group um, in which women really have no say so in what's happening. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that, and that spreads like a wildfire, you know, when you just Mm -hmm. have people going from group to group to group, and especially if they're not being, tested you know oh uh, yes how, yeah. how is testing over there because in in botswana i know they're they have a they had a heavy uh um transmission rates and and very high in in all of africa but at the same time you think 
they're the, they were a, a country that is um, that tests a lot. So obviously, if you test a lot, you're going to have a lot more positive results. How how is it over in in Zambia? Um, it's come a long way, but it's still not great. Um, the stigma attached to even being tested is still just an up a constant uphill wow. battle. Um, I know when our founders for Global Samaritans um, were living in Zambia, they would call it a room seven test. They wouldn't mm-hmm. even call it, um, you know, an HIV or AIDS test. They would call it a room seven test. And they would actually take the patients into um, the designated room at the clinic, room number seven. And that's where they would administer it. Because if they had called it um, what it really was, it would have been refused. And the stigma attached to it was so high that they, they just refused to even call it by what it was. Um, so it's certainly come a long way, but we're still fighting a lot of that. Yeah. And actually, and um, I was surprised at this too, that how, um, you know, I mean, it was, it's good that it's, it, it, it's the opposite where it's like lack of stigma and it's, it's been accepted as uh, a disease that exists and needs to be tested because down here at um, major, major festivals, especially a lot of, um, like gay pride festival, these trucks come in and uh, it says HIV and AIDS tests on the, mm-hmm. it's like, a, it's, it looks like a food truck and it says it right on it. Like you would look at like Ben and Jerry's ice cream. It says HIV testing. And there is a line of people actually yeah. waiting there. And that I thought was, um I thought was crazy. I had never seen that before of how accepted it truly, truly is of like, you know, this is a problem. People are actively trying to seek out to, avoid it to know as soon as possible if they do have it so i mean it really was like an open clinic where um i I thought it was very interesting and how a lot of times we should kind of take note of that to end some of these stigmas because the stigmas really just drive up uh rates because people don't want to a report it medical avoidance because people don't want to test positive Mm -hmm. even if probably even if they are feeling something something's off within their body they probably don't want to go because as soon as they go and it's positive scarlet letter the rest of your life absolutely absolutely so yeah that's something that that we still face and in that regard zambia is in a lot of ways probably 20 years behind um the u.s um i hope in 20 years we'll see you know hiv h trucks in which um you're tested you're comfortable you know you accept it um, but they're not there yet. You know, they're 20 years behind in music and, and clothing and trends. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that, um, you know, in 20 years, we'll see, we'll see trucks that come to, you know, different festivals and things and are, and people are willing to be tested and know their status. Well, with people like you guys over there, you know, it'll happen because you guys are helping them get out of survival mode and really as soon as a, a group of people is out of survival mode which is just getting out of um you know finding water and food and, and basic health and health care and stuff i mean then it's off to the races of just learning and applying knowledge and learning and applying knowledge and compounding that over and over the, the course and then you know it things really really do um open up rightly and i'd love to kind of ask you really what is the uh the next steps for you guys over there do you guys have any projects coming up that you guys would um like to kind of share um you know really just more of the same uh we're drilling wells um we actually drilled well a well yesterday uh, i got pictures from my zambian director oh it's awesome we got water 
So um, we really have kind of a small window in which to drill because Zambia has very distinct uh, dry seasons and rainy seasons. So we can only drill in the dry season. So, um, you know, our hope is that we'll drill. It was 10, that like June through October-ish? Um, typically like May, May through October. And then okay. kind of from October um, through April or so is the rainy season. Okay. Um, so we'll drill as many wells as we get funding for between now and when the rains start. Um, we, you know, still with our children's home, uh, we, it's been a great week actually the, to do this interview, um, or this podcast, because we got, we drilled a well yesterday and then we actually got a new child yesterday for our children's home. Awesome. Um, so, uh, you know, we're really just working more of the same, um, just trying to impact Zambia, you know, one child at a time and make a difference in, in that community. And I got to give you credit for a second because um, you're like, yeah, we're, we're doing more of the same, more of the same. You are bringing clean water to human beings who need clean water. That is needs to be said with such excitement for you guys because that is amazing work and it's purposeful work. You're helping other human beings and you're helping human beings that a lot of the United States doesn't even know even exist halfway across the world. So that, that really, um, you know, I really need I like I just want to scream that because it is awesome work and really really well well deserved with all the praise ever because what you guys are doing I mean you're you're slowly but surely building up people that really can ne can can never repay you back you know and so it's just it's completely so well intended and um it it really is awesome and amazing work and I'd love to see some photos of of the the wells you guys got going cuz I saw one video of the amount of work that goes into that and when it's finally done and you see like that well pump mm -hmm. you know pumping water that is the coolest thing ever and you have just re re-energized an entire community of locals too so i mean really uh kudos to you guys in the global samaritan team because it is it is awesome Thank you. It's exciting. It never gets old. Um, clean water never gets old. It doesn't matter how many we drill. Um, it is exciting each and every time. And we have a whole well drilling crew that kind of that goes out that identifies the area that works with the pastor or works with the the chief to find the best location to put the well in. And um, you know, it's a multiple day process. Sometimes you hit water. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you drill two, three more holes hoping to hit water. Um, but like I said, it never gets old. It's always exciting. And, um, you know, they can't repay us, but we don't expect that either. Um, yeah. our wells are 100% donor funded, um, from typically groups, individuals, um, from the U S and so we have no expectation of yeah. anything, um, in Zambia. Uh, we got a, a request just this past week for, um, a group, a community that serves marginalized people, mostly handicapped, mm. mentally and physically. Um, and they put in a request for a well and, and my Zambian director sent it to me and said, can I assume that this is one you want to do? And I was like, absolutely. Um, because if we don't do it, who will, yeah, exactly. uh, you know, who's gonna, who's gonna come in and, and do this for them. Um, and so we say yes, as often as we can, as often as we have funding for, um, we'll go in and, and we'll put in the well and put in the clean water. 
Yeah, and, and the the thing is too, like when people look at view nonprofits and look at what people are doing overseas, and so like, it's so easy to not notice how many challenges go into all of this with working with different communities and 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 establishing those relationships and maintaining those relationships and ensuring like everyone's on the same page. I mean that those those um cultural logistic hurdles are um I got I got uh, have to be so challenging too. So I mean that what you guys do overall is just is amazing and I, I'd love to help possibly with any um any funding people who are listening can can give you guys. So where can people really um find you guys over uh over there? Is it like it, your just website, Instagram? Mm-hmm. We have both an Instagram, Facebook page and um website globalsamaritans.org. Um, and if I can brag on us for just a second, uh, really the best, thing about our, <laughs> the best thing about our organization is that, um, so I've been the Zambian direct, uh, I'm sorry, I've been the American director for almost 15 years. Um, I stopped taking a salary, uh, 12 years ago, and I do this as volunteer. Um, everyone in the U S that works with global Samaritans does it because they love global Samaritans. They love what we do. Um, no one takes a salary. So if you donate to a well or a child or just Global Samaritans in general, 100% of your donation goes directly to Zambia. Um, there's no administrative costs. There's no office space. There's none of that that's that eats up into a donation that's given. Um, so typically a well costs about $7,500. Um, it also helps um, in that community. It employs our crew. Um, and we're able to go in and then we use um, that money just for the benefit of, of the children, and the people of Zambia. And if you give $7,500, all $7,500 goes yeah. directly to Zambia. How many people does one well uh, help with water? It varies. Um, it depends just kind of on the village yeah. size, community size. But we see we see anywhere from 150 um, to 500, 600 people impacted. Mm. Um, and if we have time for a brief story, I'll share about yeah. one. Um, there was a preschool that needed a well put in. Um, and preschools are very un- uncommon in Zambia. Um, typically, you start school grade one and go through grade seven. It's subsidized. And then after that, your family has to pay for it. So the whole concept of um, early education is just non-existent. But there was a, a preschool about 30 minutes from our, from our um, organization that wanted a well. Um, we came in, put in a well for the preschool. They were able to use it for the preschool and the school. Um, the community then took that upon themselves. They built a whole uh, garden um, irrigation system for the school so that they can provide the children at the preschool and at the school with fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, they That's teach awesome. the children how to how to farm it, how to cultivate it. The children are then able to take fresh fruits and vegetables home to their own families. And uh, then the community took it a step further and they created um, basically a food program for the elderly people in their community in which they receive fresh fruits and vegetables um, once every couple of weeks on a regular delivery. Um, And so this one well had the trickle down effect and like nutritional value and, um, and just sustenance for not only the preschool, but the school, their families, and then the elderly people within their own community. Yeah. And and, the, and those people and the kids go, now I feel I'm contributing. 
And when, when people feel like they're contributing, they care. All of a sudden they see a piece of trash in the ground. They want to pick it up because now there's a sense of ownership with it. And Absolutely. that really is so important for kids to have early on too, which is, um, is really incredible. I mean, I, I really wish we were doing that in the United States, like teaching kids how to just these basic concepts of, of growing fruits and vegetables and feeding and how, and how this, this works. That's, that's really amazing stuff. Yeah. I, um, I, I appreciate you guys so much, Aaron, for coming on. And I look forward to maybe, um, you know, catching up with you guys down the road on, um, uh, you know, on, on some updates and see how many wells you guys have installed. Absolutely. So yeah, we've, we've started drilling, um, for this season and yesterday was our, our fourth. So we're, uh, we're rocking and rolling. We have a great crew. Um, and we've, we've gotten a couple donations. We've gotten a, a grant. And so we hope to, to drill from now until October. That's awesome. And that is, this is your busy season. This is, this is our busy season. Um, not only with well drilling, but also this is when most teams go to Zambia because you have summer holidays and kind of time off from work. And so we actually have um, nine teams that will go to Zambia between March and August. Okay. So. All right. Well, that's um, that's awesome stuff. Fun fact before we wrap up about uh, Zambia too. Um, I learned this in, in um, through looking at some research. In 1964, some history buffs will get a kick out of this. 1964, the Summer Olympics happened, and Zambia was the first country ever um, because that was the same year that they entered the Olympics as the country of northern Rhodesia. And the last day of the Olympics, they declared their independence from Great Britain. So they're the only country in the world to enter an Olympics as one country and leave as a different country. <laughs> that is a fun fact. Yeah. So um, if you remember anything about it, Zambia, it's Global Samaritans and also that fact. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, Aaron. We will uh, link up down the road then. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me on today. Yes.